0: Hello and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website,
1: www.allbetsareoff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Welcome everyone to another episode of All Bets Are Off. I'm Chris and today I'm going to be joined by another Chris, a guy who many of you will know uh, called Chris Murphy. He'll be getting him on shortly to have a chat about his experiences, his own personal experiences of gambling harm, his own personal experience of relapse, as well as that talking about um, what he does today with the in Chance Clinic and also as a comms manager for the Professional Darts Players Association. And as well as that, um, he's a darts commentator, so I'm hoping we'll have some discussion around darts and advertising and all sorts of stuff but to be honest just going to see where this conversation takes us Um, so without further ado let's crack on with the pod Hiya, Chris. Thanks for coming on to All Bets Are Off Today. Lovely to have you with us. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's really, really good. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Um, you interest me somewhat because I've uh, I've heard you talk before and, and I like some of the stuff you talk about with regards to like relapse and and the way you give your own opinions on stuff. So I'm really excited to get into this, get into this discussion and talk about the stuff you're doing now as well, um, with regards to your work and and maybe how some of that um kind of fits into to some of the gambling discussion that I might want to have specifically around maybe advertising and stuff like that. But let's see where it takes us. So uh, I guess, first of all, let's start with um, you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, Chris.
0: Yeah. So um, obviously, the re- one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I'm on this podcast and have been on a, you've, that you've heard my story is because um, I had, stroke have, not sure where I stand on that debate yet, but a gambling addiction. Um I've had it all of my adult life, um, possibly uh, some of my childhood as well, and I've been in in and out of different forms of recovery for about 15 years, um, currently haven't had a bet or a drink, which is probably something I'll touch on as well, um, for just over two and a half years, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place. Um, Personally, um, financially, career-wise, I work as a darts commentator um, and I work for Sporting Chance as well, the mental health charity for professional sports people who deal with many mental health issues but addiction is one of them. Um, I'm their communications manager but also largely involved in shaping their gambling education content as well. So, um, so yeah, uh, in a good place and um, still still doing what I need to do to to live a life free from from addiction.
1: That's great to hear, Chris. And uh, I like what you said there about, you know, not sure where I stand with regards to recovering or recovered or whatever it might be. I'm kind of the same, you know what I mean? But for me, I just do, I try and do the right things day to day to make sure that um, I don't ever get back to that place that I was in before.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not sure it matters, to be honest. I'm not sure it's that we often get, dragged into these debates and things with ourselves and other people. I'm not sure it matters that much as long as you're doing as you said the right things on a daily basis to make sure that you stay free from it now.
1: Totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, we're both sitting here smiling and that's what's important. I think, you know what I mean? We're in a place where we can both sit here and smile. What we what we call ourselves is is irrelevant in many ways like you say. Um so the gambling, Chris, the gambling, when, when, did, it, when did it begin, I suppose? For you? you said about 15 years, you gambled as an adult, I think you said. How did it begin?
0: Yeah, I, I probably uh, took a few years off, actually, because I celebrated, um, well, in court, celebrated my 35th birthday last week. And actually, my first bet when I was 17. So it's it actually 18 years since um, I placed my first bet. Um, in terms of actually gambling uh it was that first bet that started everything off i put a small accumulator on the football um, accumulator and it won at odds of 175 to 1 um so um as a 17 year old lad who was you know still at college and never had more than 20 quid in his pocket it was a big deal for me but actually as i've gone through some treatment and recovery and therapy and things i've realized that i had an obsession with gambling related things from an earlier age and that I remember when the National Lottery first came out and I used to uh, write down six numbers every week, you know, and sit in front of the TV and and almost imagine that I had a lottery ticket as a child, was really obsessed with that. My mum tells me that when we went places, I would always, you know, try and borrow money off or get money off her and my stepdad to go on the, the coin machines. Um, and I'd be back five minutes later asking for more money, where when they gave my brother money, he would spend a little bit, save a little bit. So I've always had an emotional relationship with money. I think there's something about gambling that's always attracted me for some reason, Um, and I think I've had a bit of an all-or-nothing personality as well. I, I refrain from using the word addictive personality, but I certainly think that uh, for example, I would play computer games obsessively, like things like Championship Manager, as it was called then. You know, I could play for hours and hours and hours and, and completely get lost in this kind of dream world, um, which is a purpose that later in life I found in gambling, particularly on the uh, the slots and things like that um the, the casino style games because it, you know it's not real um and uh, very quickly lost interest in sports betting personally when i found roulette machines and the bookies and uh in casinos and then later online because they gave me a kind of escape that that The other things didn't you know they were almost too real for me and um too you had to be too patient and i I was kind of very impatient and wanted the big win as quickly as possible um so my gambling take has many different forms over the years but for that sort of first five years from placing that first bet um until until i had a suicide attempt when i was 23 years old um i was probably gambling every single day um and if that meant going to a casino with a few thousand pounds in my pocket because that's what I had to my name. I would take it all with me until it had gone. And if I had nothing, I'd be looking down the back of the sofa to find 20p to chuck on a horse racing accumulator just so that I had some action to keep the blood pumping that day.
1: I can relate to all that, really. Um, Apart from maybe the uh, kind of 2p machines as a kid, because I've always said before, that isn't something that kind of of interested me and I didn't start gambling until I was 30. However, um, I was young when the uh, National Lottery came out and I remember sitting there on the Saturday nights now I didn't write six numbers down but it was really um odd how it I mean it, it was like a family entertainment show on a Saturday night wasn't it and, and and that's so weird to think of that now um I can't imagine sitting there with my kids watching that as entertainment you know firstly I find it boring I wouldn't have a lottery ticket obviously because it's not something that I can do but yeah really really weird like I hadn't obviously nobody had experienced anything like that before where it was just on the TV, the the excitement of maybe winning, which obviously they, they they big up, when actually what what are the odds? You know, one in forty million or something to win. But everyone's sitting there as a family watching it, and that was very odd. I guess that's maybe one of those first places where it really started to be normalised as an activity.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's probably underestimated, Chris. In in I think that might have been the start of it. You know, the start of the kind of um, what I call. Uh, sort of call-to-action advertising, um, which is, you know, the National Lottery was literally a big finger coming down from the sky pretending to be God saying it could be you, you know, and, and that was probably much worse than some of the advertising we see now that's being campaigned against, although it's the same kind of thing, Ray Winston saying bet now, um, bet on this now that you get these odds if you do it in half-time or whatever it is. Um, but I think that was probably, the, as you say, the start of a normalisation on a mass scale in this country and giving everyone the belief that gambling could
1: change their lives. Absolutely. And what, what it doesn't do is it doesn't say it could change your life for the better or the worse so does it? And I think that, and that's, that's the important thing. We know that it can change it for the worse, but yeah, that big finger, I hadn't thought of it like that. And it is, it is, it is in a much more maybe subtle way and maybe a much more, um, it's worse in many ways, like you say, than Ray Winston telling you to bet now, which is, you know, he's the one told me to bet now. And he's the one who I say made me download my first app. And, and in some ways I do mean it in that way, because like I say, I've never been into gambling. I was 30 years old. I was vulnerable. Um, I had, you know, I'd had drink problems since I was 14 because, And I I didn't think of it as a drink problem back then, but, you know, I started drinking because of fear and I needed to escape and all that kind of stuff. So When that wasn't really working for me in the same way anymore, I accidentally found gambling and really I was vulnerable and Ray Winston kept saying, bet now, bet now, bet now. Um, And it's very similar. But that big finger from the national lottery, you're right, it's like... Finger from God, isn't it? How 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 incredible. I've never thought of it that way, really. I've never looked back. But I think that was the start of the the very dangerous normalization. Obviously, we find ourselves in a very, very difficult environment now. My kids are always asking me about gambling and stuff. And and that's good because they know about it and they know my experience. So I can talk to them truthfully about it. But there's a lot of people out there whose parents don't understand the danger and therefore this stuff can be very, very dangerous, as we both know. And, and maybe that's a good time to, to to quickly jump into the suicide attempt that you just mentioned when you were 23. Obviously, anybody who gets to the stage where they want to take their own life has had a real battle, a real difficulty with the thing that, that they maybe started out with because they thought it would be fun, as the advertising tells us now.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that... Um when you get to, when you sort of move into adulthood, uh, you start to think what are you going to do with your life? And I actually got thrown out of college before my A-levels um, because when I had that first bet win, I I became addicted almost immediately. Like I just carried on gambling from that point. Um, and it happened very quickly for me. For other people, it can take, you know, years of like a subtle deterioration. But for me, it was almost instant um, that it got me. And, so it took away what I had always seen being my future, or I thought it did. We, we can come on to the positives of the story later because actually when I was at college, I was applying to go on a sports journalism course and I ended up doing that later in life anyway and then have the job that I'm happy doing now. So um, it's never too late, I suppose, is another sort of moral of my story. But um, but yeah, I'd, so I'd sort of gambling had not only taken away what I thought was my future... In doing so, it became my future. Um, I really believed that this was going to be the thing that I would do. You know, I, I not in any sort of um, systematic professional gambler dream type way, which some people have, where they think they can beat the system, or they, you know, they decide they're going to play poker for a living, or um, you know, a certain style of sports bag. I never had a system. I just got it into my head that you know. <laughs> I was going to be the lucky one. I was going to be the one that you know proved every, that, that everyone else wrong and the rule wrong, um, and I, and particularly when I got onto slots and stuff, because I could see that or the or the perception was there. I believed that a big win was possible, and I just kind of got it into my head that if I play absolutely loads, I'm about to get the big win at some time, and it doesn't matter how much damage I do because when I have that big win, it'll you know wash all the damage away. Um, and I'll be able to live happily ever after. Of course that was never the case. And after a period of time, it became um, and I hear a lot of people in other addictions say this and I understand what they mean. I don't hear it as much with gambling, but it it stopped being enjoyable. Like it stopped working. It, it became it became a job. It became like you know, I was a slave to trying to win a little bit of money to survive or a little bit of money to pay the most pressing debts, And I'd given up on the big win. I was just kind of playing with um, survival in mind, really. And um, it got to the point where I was thinking about my future. I didn't think I had a future. I'd lost jobs because of my addiction. I was doing work that I wasn't connected to at all that I didn't enjoy at all but but I was getting cash in hand for so I would be able to go straight to the bookies at the end of the day and if I had a win by the way I didn't turn up the following day because that had started off my uh, my run of gambling again but um and I'd flirted with with recovery in that period as well at my first year meeting I was 18 my mum dragged me there kicking and screaming she drove me there for a few weeks and waited in the car park and when she stopped doing that I stopped going um, pretended I was going and went to the bucket instead because, you know, that's what gambling addict does um, if they're not in a place where they're willing to admit that they've got a problem. And, yeah, and so a lot of my friends knew that I had a problem by the point of the suicide attempt when I was 23. So all my gambling had become, had become very, very secretive then because my friends thought I was in recovery and on the right path and all that kind of thing. And um, ironically, they, they were all on a trip to Hairdock Races, which I wasn't invited on because of my gambling addiction. Uh, little did they know that I'd been on a horrendous run, um, both financially and emotionally and mentally. And I decided when everyone was aware that um, I made a list of all my debts for the first time, uh, didn't make good reading. And, and at that time, because I'd lost a lot of... Um, I was you know, blacklisted by financial institutions. A lot of this was cash to people, um, some friends, some family, some people that you don't want to be owing cash to. And um, I made a list of them all, got a figure, looked at how much money I had available to me, which was probably about 2% of this figure, and said to myself, right, I'm going to go into town, um, win it all back, pay everybody off, or I'm going to lose it all and, and take my own life. And actually that day I, I lost everything immediately. Um, I don't know about you, but when I used to gamble, usually it'd sort of fluctuate. I'd be at it for a while. It'd be up and down. You know, never enough for me to want to leave. Um, I'm not sure there would have ever, ever been a big enough amount for me to want to leave or stop. But all, always enough for me to carry on playing for the rest of that day. Um, but this day it just went immediately. And I just almost took it as a sign, like a divine sign, saying actually like this is the end of the road for you. Um, And having been to, like, GA meetings and stuff before, um, it was like I'd just become... Gambling had become my identity to myself, that it was like a life without gambling was not worth living anywhere. If I'd dedicated my life to this thing to get this big win at some point and and the realisation that it wasn't going to happen was the end of my life. Uh, But not only that, it was... Everyone else was right, really, the people that had warned me about gambling addiction... I'd let them all down, and I also thought, as I'm sure many people do when they contemplate something like suicide, is that my their life would be better off if I wasn't around anymore. You know, they would be happier; they wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. They wouldn't have to lend me money anymore. They wouldn't have to say no to lending me money, and w- w- wonder whether they should feel guilty about it or not. Um, so yeah, um, I lost it all. I went up to the moors near where I lived. Um, and took a load of tablets um, and sort of waited for something to happen. And it was a serious attempt on my my own life. I think, you know, people talk about cries for help and stuff like that. Um, I swallowed a lot of tablets, and I believe them to be sleeping pills. Um, And I'm glad they weren't, because uh, if it hadn't have worked, I've, I've read what actually happens when you overdose on sleeping pills, and it's not as pleasant as going to sleep and never waking up again. Um, It's uh, quite a violent uh, reaction, actually. But, um, yeah, my friend who I shared in a house with, like, four friends, and he took sleeping pills and I'd stolen them from his drawer. Little did I know that they were in the second drawer, and in the top drawer, the pills that were actually in his drawer were hair fever tablets, and uh, I'd I'd tried to overdose on hair fever tablets. So that was a blessing in disguise, and I I get really bad hair fever now, ironically. So... um, you know it's a bit of a reminder every every sneeze and every itch in the in the summer is a little bit of a reminder of that period and, and not not in a negative way not as you know how low you were but also just as a way of counting my blessings that you know that's my life could have been over at 23 and 12 years later it's it's better than it's ever been so um yeah it, again although it's got a kind of comical element to it the thoughts and the feelings that I was experiencing weren't in any way comical. They were they were honestly how I felt at the time, and it was a a pretty dark place to
1: be in. It's quite something to listen to, Chris. It really is, um, and I can relate so much to 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 it. Actually, actually, to so much of what you said, even going back to some of the stuff you were saying earlier in the show around. How you started gambling on sports, but then you found the slots, you needed a quicker, a quicker hit essentially. And then the sports betting wasn't what you wanted to do. I was very much the same, you know, I, I did continue to do the sports betting, but it was much less and it was much more progressive. And it was, you know, it was the casino style games all the time to get that very quick hit. Um, and also then obviously through to the fact that, you know, I, I planned to take my, my life as well, um, I guess the difference is I didn't start betting until I was thirty, but it hit me very quickly as well. I wasn't somebody who it took years to grab. You know, it grabbed me within weeks, um, and you know, I tried to stop a few times within that those five years that I gambled. And when I was thirty-five, I uh, I was there planning to take my own life as well. And interestingly, the night that I was planning to take my life because I felt I felt like there was no other way out. I'm going to try and explain this. Um, I wasn't. So I was trying to win money to leave it to my young family because, like you said, everybody would be better off without me. You thought everybody would be better off without you. Now, I know that's not the case at all, obviously, looking back and how horrendous that would have been. Um, But I was trying to win this money to leave it to them so they could have some kind of life. So I wasn't gambling to win the money. I was gambling to die that night. I was gambling to get a way out. But the problem was, unless I won that figure that I had in my head, I couldn't leave them. So thank God I didn't win it because um, because I would have done. It was like, I was so comfortable at that point you know, with, the, with the, the fact that I was gonna take my own life. It was like the thing that I needed to happen. I wanted to happen. I needed my way out. I know now I never wanted to die. I just wanted to find a way to get out of it. And thank God by losing that night, that was that final time. Um, and I managed to go and get help that week. I mean, I went to a GA meeting and an AA meeting in the same week because obviously I've got the, the alcohol um, side of stuff as well. Um, and yeah, crikey, you know, these attempts are real, aren't they? Um, it's where our head takes us. And I feel very lucky now that I think through the recovery, and we'll come on to your recovery, maybe in the second half, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail, a lot more detail. Um, Through my recovery, I've started to, to love myself. And now sometimes I still feel in my head, actually, and not because of gambling, but just all the stuff that was going on in my head that made me gamble and made me drink, that's all still there. And I have to manage that in other ways. Sometimes I still think, oh, this would be better if I was dead. But I never think it would be better if I was to take my own life because I love myself now and I wouldn't hurt somebody who I love. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's more its more that feeling of if I close my eyes and didn't wake up, the pain would be gone. So it's nothing to do with like... Um, Suicide or ideology or anything like that, it's just a different way of thinking. But yeah, I've got so many tools now to, to, to mean that I can do all the right stuff. And uh, but yeah, really, really interesting to hear what you're saying. Um, I'd like to very quickly actually, because I think it, it kind of goes into what I'm trying to say now about relapse and stuff. Um, I started gambling when I was 30. In 2015, which would have been two and a half years into the gambling, I reached out for some help, which was with the problem gambling clinic. Um, at that point, I wasn't ready to stop drinking. And even though I wanted to stop gambling, I just couldn't do it. I did stop for a period of time, then did a raffle, won a raffle, got me all straight back into the gambling. And obviously, that gambling was then worse and worse and worse. And then it got 10 to the end of 2017, and I decided on that night that I was just talking about, where well, I had planned to, to end my life. I got to a place where it was like, I now need to recover. And to do that, I need to stop gambling and drinking. And I went to a GA meeting. So, what I would say as of that day, I've, I've been in recovery and I haven't relapsed. However, when I look back at my story in its entirety, actually, what happened was my journey of recovery really began mid 2015. And in that time, between 2015 and the end of 2017, I changed as a person. When I went to the problem gambling clinic, I thought I was a mess. My life. When I went to the GA meeting, that's when I was in a mess. And I wish I could have stopped the drinking in 2015 and I could have stopped the gambling drinking at that point. I never would have hit the same bottom that I did. And I genuinely believe people don't need to get to that level that I was at. You know, I could have got off it sooner if I'd if I'd managed to stop drinking, but drinking was my friend, and I was scared to stop drinking. I think a lot of people listening to this might have been the case where place where they were scared to stop gambling because it's what they knew it was was what they perceived as their friend or or even if not their friend their enemy that they wanted to spend time with Um, for me it was I want to stop gambling but I'm so scared to stop drinking now that I've stopped both I realized how good life can be Um, and I just kind of wanted to get a little bit of um, a discussion going with you around your thoughts and feelings around relapse and how actually I guess in my mind it's part of recovery
0: yeah it's certainly been part of mine and I would agree I mean there are two ways of looking at it and the ways that you've suggested one is that my recovery started two years and seven months ago when I decided to put down the drink as well actually in a very similar um in a very similar way to you to how you described although it was never it was never obvious to me that drink was a factor in my addiction gambling was like so far and away the biggest addiction that I've ever had um, that I never really realised that drink was part of the problem. Um, although the, although sometimes the, the answers are in front of you, you're just not willing to see them. For example, in in one of the GA books, there's a little pink book called Deviations Along the Road to Recovery. And there's a line in there that it literally says that where drinking is used as a gateway to gambling, the drinking has to go. And I think that there's a in some J meetings, a bit of a laid-back attitude towards other fa- factors. Um, it can be very much – It's a lot of J meetings, in my experience, have become very much about the gambling itself and not about the emotional factors, not about the recovery programme and not about other things that you can do to protect yourself other than sort of physical barriers, and which we're grateful to have. Um, but I think, yeah, for some people, those physical barriers alone aren't enough. So what I would say is that I've been attending meetings of some form for 10 or 11 years now. And after that suicide attempt when I was 23, I, I did 18 months free from gambling off the bat due to a combination of the amount of pain that I was in emotionally and the physical barriers that I put in place. But the meetings that I went to, no members engaged with the, with the recovery program, um... Most of them probably didn't need to. Um, for, for for a lot of people, that was enough. That's fine. I'm not here to my you know approved form of recovery is whatever works for you. You know, because everyone's different and everyone has different sort of things that work for them. Um, not just in in recovery from addiction, but in all sorts of uh, ways of life. But but there are some people who do need that little bit more, that little bit of a stronger treatment, that little bit more. Of an intense treatment and i think that's where things like rehab or things like the 12-step program come in for somebody who like really is full-scale addicted um to a substance or a behavior like gambling so for me i did 18 months off the bat but then immediately when the emotional pain had worn off and a little bit of money hit my bank account because I started to relax some of those barriers. I was straight out at the same level I was before. Um, I remember it well. The first one was I'd gone to uni as a mature student um, to pursue that sports journalism dream and my student loan went in a day early. I planned to give the give my bank card to my mum the following day, um, but my student loan went in a day early and I just happened to see it in my account and immediately drew out the maximum from the cash machine and went up to the betting shop and um, started losing. And that was a very short-lived relapse because I only had a short window of time because the next day my mum's expecting my bank card. So, you know, but after that, I think I did another year um, on a similar kind of recovery plan. And then what started to happen was, Chris, the, uh, the lengths of abstinence became shorter and the relapses became longer and more damaging. And it got to the point where... I was just waiting to relapse. I was going back to a meeting. I've done it again. Everybody's saying, "Well, you know what to do," and um, me doing that and just repeating the cycle. And um, it was only really when I had a, another read. And actually, some of my relapses have ended up in far worse um, states. I was than when I when I wanted to take my own life. Um, I've, I've been driven to really severe clinical depression with it, and actually what you said before about you know wanting to go to sleep and not wake up because I'd had mental health support and because I'd learned something from when I did attempt suicide. Um, I never got to that point of attempting it again, but I did like feel like not being here again many, many times. There was one point where I had mental health nurses coming to check in on me at home every day um, to make sure that I wasn't going to do anything like that. Um, but, yeah, I think there were... They were <laughs> Loads of occasions where if, if I don't know if you've ever suffered from depression, um, but when you're depressed, you, you're nodding. Obviously, the, the listeners can.
1: Oh, I've, I've really suffered from depression over the last few years. And interestingly, I think I probably did when I was gambling and when I was, well, I certainly did at the end of the gambling and when I was drinking, but I drank and gambled you know, I was drinking, I was gambling, it was stopping, it was suppressing those feelings. Um, so it's in these last few years that I've really, really noticed it. Yeah, absolutely. Medi-
0: that, and that's what they do. They, they medicate it and it's, it's an escape from it. But when I was depressed and not gambling, the only thing I, the only thing I wanted to do was sleep. And and that's when you said that thing about not just going to sleep and not waking up. I would just stay in bed all day. I remember I had a Fitbit at the time for some reason and I was sleeping like 18 hours a day and it just – because – that was, a, that was my only escape. That was the only way I could escape how I felt at, the, at that time, or some of those times. Um, so I just kept this pattern of um, abstinence and relapse. And then I went back to a a J meeting on the 1st of January, or just after the 1st of January 2019, which is the day that I had my last bet and, and drink. So it would have been a few days later. And it just happened again. I kind of went, I've done it again. You know, this is where I am. Um... And someone just said those words again, you know what to do. And I left the meeting and I didn't say anything in the meeting, but I left the meeting I thought, you know what, I don't know what to do. I know how to stop gambling for a little while and then relapse again, but I ain't got a clue what to do. So um, I got my head into a book. It was uh, Russell Brand's recovery book. And I started trying to work the 12 steps through that. And then when I got to step two, I realized I couldn't do it on my own. And I reached out to a relative who had been clean from – severe drug addiction for for many years and all i put in the text was i need help and the next day um she it's my auntie she put me in touch with a friend of hers who said you know meet this guy for coffee and he took me to a meeting in another fellowship and um i still go to that fellowship now and um he he became my sponsor he's still my sponsor now and you know i'm working the 12 steps like properly i've got a program of recovery I see a therapist um, every two weeks. It used to be every week. It's now every two weeks. Um, and in that period, I haven't relapsed. So I think it's um, that time that I had where I was relapsing and abstaining, relapsing and abstaining. None of it was wasted because I, I did learn something, you know, from from every single one of them. I did learn something. and um, And sometimes I just had to, you know, Sometimes I had to prove to myself that I was still an addict and I went out and you know got beaten up again and it is like getting in the ring with Mike Tyson isn't it but um when the pain stopped was when I thought you know what I'm not getting in the ring anymore and and that's kind of you know where I'm at now so yeah relapse it doesn't doesn't have to be part of anyone's journey but what I would say is that we all have to be respectful of other people's um levels of illness or addiction or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that includes those people who, so so while I'm respectful of someone who perhaps doesn't need the same level of treatment as me, they can just go to a meeting and download Gamban and sign up to Gamstop and maybe let the partner look after the money or whatever. And that's enough for them. I needed to change fundamentally, um, the way that I lived, the way that I thought, the way that I felt, um, and find other ways to to get a buzz out of life and to to get happiness and um and to not need to escape myself because right you said it before because because I love myself I don't hate myself therefore I don't need to escape from myself anymore and i think sometimes um, some people who have found it easier whether they were not as severely afflicted or they just faster learners than than, than a faster learner than i was can sometimes be a bit blasé about well you know, all you need to do is come to meetings and stop gambling. Um, you know, for for, for me, that, that would never work. I need to live a certain way. I need to carry on with my therapy. I need to um, have all the protections in place that they've got, but I need fundamentally a, a treatment program, a program of recovery, and a, and, a, and a spiritual way of life is is what works for me. And that's um, when I went to that first meeting in the other fellowship, my auntie said to me, if you get a sponsor and engage with that sponsor you do service at the meetings you do the steps and you share in the meetings then you will know you won't need to relapse ever again and so far she's been right i fully
1: understand all that i fully understand all that chris it's funny isn't it um like i said i started ga and aa um on a thursday and friday of the same week and and even though they both kind of come from the same place um the meetings i go to are are very different Um, and in my aa meetings i would say we we do Talk about and think about the 12 steps a lot more, um, and I'm lucky for that because that helps me with my program. Um, and in GA, it's, it's a slightly different type of meeting that I have, but equally, it, because of the way um, these fellowships are set up, you know, they are self um, supported in their local um, groups, so no group is the same. Okay, they have the same book, and they have the same, um, you know, all of them have the same traditions. You know, and you go to one because you want to stop gambling. You go to one because you don't want to drink, for example. But actually, each group is then different in many respects. You know, they they do have the same things to follow. Everybody goes there to stop gambling. But every group is different. And I'll be welcome to every group that I go to. and I can go there and I can talk about myself, listen to other people, get advice. But every group is different. And I totally un- understand what you're saying. And I think in addition to that, and one of the beautiful things that I've realized in the last... I don't know what it is now, a year and a half or something since I started, um, started this podcast, um, It's the fact that I have learned about so many different ways to, to recover and not just having to go to a, to a GA meeting, which when I went to it, it was kind of like, like this is where you come to get better. Um, and it can be. It can be. Of course it can be. And it certainly helps me. And I still go every week. But it isn't the only thing that's out there. And what you say about respecting each other's recovery, that's really, really important. It's also important to realise that going to a meeting once a week isn't enough for some people. And in fact, I always think that's like an hour or two hours of safety in a week. But all those other hours outside of a meeting, that's when you've got to put things into practice and do the stuff that you need to do. Um, And whether that is um, through building relationships with people in a gambler's anonymous room, or other people elsewhere or getting a therapist or whatever it might be you know you've got to do what's right for you Um, and it's really important and but the one thing for me and this is just a personal thing is for me it's always been and you, you touched on it actually when you said about going to your second fellowship about not being able to do it yourself for me this is all about support getting a network and being able to communicate with that network Um, and that's both like talking and listening so giving to it and taking from it and in whatever sense you do that I think you're going to get some help um, and I truly believe that
0: absolutely and I think you're right about the meetings all being different in fact when I did um, it's quite common in the other fellowship pagoda to do like 90 meetings in 90 days at the beginning and when I was going to meetings every day I actually made a sort of you could, it was almost like a pick and mix that I'd produce. I'd go, one of them would be a GA meeting. One of them would be a steps meeting. One of them would be a main share meeting. One of them would be just-for-today reading and you know sharing on that. One would be about the tradition. So I would sort of have every possible element of the recovery program being fed into me in that first 90 days, which, again, was totally different. It was almost like a form of rehab, um, intense rehab, because for that first 90 days, I had that hour or two hours of, as you described it, safety every single day and I just got topped up and it went on and now I go to two to three meetings a week um but you know slowly over time it went down to four and then three and now it's all sort of two or three and I think I don't think I'll ever go below two I hope I won't ever go below two because I like um I get a lot out of it but also I like to give back as well and um you know be in service to be there for people like people were there for me so um so yeah I think you're right about that and it's one of these sort of advantages actually of getting to know yourself isn't it that you learn what you're comfortable with what works for you what suits you um and I've become a much more mellow character in meetings as well um before when I used to be the, the sort of serial relapse relapser in the meetings I could become a very argumentative, very disruptive in the meetings because, um, you know, I think often the people that are, and I'm saying this because I'm talking about myself, um, the people that are are often, they want to look at everybody else because they're not ready to look at themselves yet. And actually now I'm looking at myself, um, I'm much calmer and um, much more tolerant and accepting of other people's journeys because, uh, because you know, actually the minority of addicts are in meetings. A very small minority of people that are struggling with addictions of any kind are, are trying to do something about it. Have got to that point. So that in itself, whether they're engaging with the 12 steps, whether they're being destructive in meetings at first or whatever it might be, is is kind of irrelevant because the important thing is that they actually recognise they've got a problem and they're reaching out for help.
1: Yeah, wholeheartedly agree with that, Chris. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, And for me, you know, I I notice now how I'm different in meetings, I guess, from the very beginning when I first started to go. And I like it now. I like who I've become and how I can talk in those meetings. And I think one thing that I I do take pride in, actually, because I'm able to do this. And I I feel it's like I use... um, I use those meetings in the right ways because I can talk about when I'm feeling good. And I also make sure I talk about when I'm not feeling good because I know that that could lead to something. And I think in the past there might've been times early on when I just want to talk about the good things, just want to talk about the good things. But now I've got into a place where I trust people. I'm very, very comfortable to talk about good the indifferent and the bad. And that's really, really helpful for me. It really helps me manage my emotions, I guess. But Chris, it's been a great chat so far. We're just going to go to a quick advert now um, where we'll hear from our sponsors, Gamban. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban and they've teamed up with Gamcare and GamStop to formulate Stop. The Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm with support via Gamcare's National Gambling Helpline, free Gamban blocking software, and GamStop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. TalkBan Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now, though, it's time to get back into the pod. Thanks everyone for sticking around. Uh, now back to part two, and let's pick up the conversation with Chris. Um, and Chris, I know you've got loads to talk about, really. So, um, how about you lead off on this bit? What do you want to chat about?
0: Yeah, well, I think obviously the first half is kind of dominated by my story and um, and recovery really. And I think I kind of bring it a little bit more to the present, um, if if that's all right. Um, so, obviously, I as I shared in the first half, um, had a dream to be to be. In sports journalism, I always wanted to be a commentator, and um, I'm kind of living that dream now. I'm a darts commentator. I wanted to be a football commentator when I was younger, actually, but darts kind of overtook it as my favourite sport in in adulthood. And um, obviously, I do some work for Sporting Chance, which we can which which we can touch on as well. But yeah, I think um, one of the things that during that time of relapse that I spoke about before was having to make a decision several times actually about whether or not being involved in sport was the right environment for me. Um, many, many times I relapsed and looked at all the factors that might be contributing to why I couldn't um, seem to stay stopped from gambling, if, if that makes sense. I could stop, but I couldn't stay stopped. Um, and one of them that kept coming back to me was like, you're working in sport and there's a, just a huge gambling culture around sport now. And I say now because, you know, there hasn't actually always been. People think there has, but there hasn't actually always been that big of a a gambling culture around sport. There has in my adult life, but not in my parents, other than horse racing, really. Um, So, yeah, I think um, that's a challenge that, you know, maybe I want to talk about because the the conclusion that I've come to now is – I have been challenged on this actually when I've spoken to other people in in private on social media. I try not to get involved in public um, arguments on social media, but people have tried, sort of tried to call me out on. Well, you work in you're a darts commentator and you're uh, indirectly therefore paid by the bookies and stuff like that. That's you know, my answer to that is well, gambling took a lot away from me, and I always wanted to do this job, and I'm doing it. Um, And it would be a really sad thing if gambling were to take that away from me as well, even though it's not me gambling. It's just out of a sort of strength of moral feeling um, over something that I've got no control over whatsoever. Um, And I kind of thought about it. And all the times I thought about leaving, I said to myself, well, what will you do? And often, I'm sure you've been in this position before yourself as well. You think, you know what, I just want a simple life. So I'll just go and get a job. Um, for example, in a supermarket, and I might really enjoy that job um, because um, I think that I'll be, you know, able enough to do it. I think that I can, you know, maybe be flexible with the hours and and it just could suit me to have a job that I would sort of seem would seem quite simple to me. I'm not saying easy. I'm just saying I don't need to be thinking about work all the time and have. And be in an environment around gambling, and then I start thinking to myself, "Well, hang on a minute. What if you go and work in the kiosk, and you have to sell lottery tickets and scratch cards? And would those people who ask me about gambling in sport say the same to someone who works in a supermarket? Well, you know, you're indirectly taking money from a gambling company, or you know, uh, if someone had an issue with alcohol and have to sell alcohol as part of the job. So it always comes back down to that, really. That First of all, I'm not letting gambling kill another dream for me. But secondly, like, well, what would I do instead? And how, you're always somewhere not too far removed from, from certain issues. You know, do I, not, I don't drink anymore. Does that mean I don't go to a restaurant where they sell alcohol? Because I'm helping them, the alcohol industry survive, not by paying for the alcohol, but by paying for the food that keeps those restaurants and establishments going um so yeah i think that's like an interesting one as well and the second thing i do is with sporting chance as well um which is you know i'm very proud to work with an organization um that helps people that's another thing that that's probably one of the things that has come out of my recovery is like it became very important to me to get involved in something where i could um help other people and i do some things voluntarily of course so like a stripping it down to the bare bones. I have service at um, the meetings that I attend. Um, I sit on a, a experts by experience panel for the Northern Gambling Clinic um, and helped, you know, a lot of voluntary stuff when they're set up because I live in Leeds where, where the first one was set up. Um, but I'm very honoured to them, very, like, privileged to be able to do a job that's in that area as well. Um, and it, it's kind of a job that combines both my personal and professional life because I've got my experience in communications and sports PR, sports media before I became a commentator as a press officer um, and also my own personal experience of, of addiction and mental health and um, yeah um, I suppose if you've got any questions on on either of those two subjects and um, I'm more than happy to answer
1: them. I mean it's really great to hear it's really great to hear and I'm glad that you um, continued with your your commentary because it would have been so so sad to lose out on another dream because of because of gambling you know like you say you have no control over it um at all where that money's coming from um and you're it's, it's you're living a dream how I mean, when you were 23 and you took those hay fever tablets which you thought was sleeping tablets you could not believe that you believe living this dream right now so i think that's something you need to do and when you picked up on about the um lottery tickets and scratch cards in the supermarket I was just about to jump in actually and say exactly the same thing so we were thinking the same way there Um, no you're right you know I I go to the pub I'm an alcoholic in recovery I go to the pub and I don't buy drink obviously but I'll buy meals and stuff in there Um, and that's all right you know I've no problem with that at all you know it makes it makes sense so yeah it's very very sad when you kind of have to go through these feelings yourself but I'm glad you made this made this choice and Sporting Chance, I think it's it's fantastic, and obviously it was it was um, set up by Tony Adams, obviously years ago. And and I know like, we've had Chris Woods on the show, the uh, the cricketer, and I know he's been through it. And I listened to his podcast originally, which he did with Sporting Chance, and it was it was incredible. And I think it's so good, but also you know I I, I came to know Sporting Chance as an addiction uh, kind of clinic, but it's actually much wider, isn't it? It's much wider. It deals with all sorts of of mental health and stuff. And I'm just interested to know, you know. Um, Obviously, without talking about people' names or anything, and you probably wouldn't even know in your particular role, actually. uh, I imagine all that stuff's confidential. Kind of, what do you see come come through the clinic with regards to the types of um, mental health issues or addictions? Does it come from specific sports more than others? Um, Is there more gambling than alcohol and drugs at the moment? All that kind of stuff. Wonder if you could pick up on some of that. Yeah, definitely. And you're right that that sort of names
0: are confidential, but I'm aware of the. Um, presenting problems and which sports and stuff people come from. Um, The sports one's a bit of a, it could be a bit of a skewed picture because there are some sports where more people have access to our services, for example, um, or PFA members, past and present, have access to our services. So the majority of people that we're going to see are footballers because, you know, it's just, it's a bigger, it's a bigger client base, basically. But in terms of issues, the, the most common issue is usually um, lower mood um, depression um, followed by anxiety and then further down the list of the addictive disorders substances alcohol and substances because we regard alcohol as a drug together and gambling are pretty much kind of neck and neck usually in terms of referrals um, but gambling that's gambling has sort of drawn level with them in recent years and actually I think it was start of this year or maybe the end of last year for the first time in in a in like a single month of referrals gambling was higher than than alcohol and other drugs for referrals so in terms of addictive disorders gambling has kind of become the biggest one um it's it, the other problems are, still exist what one of the good things about about gambling is the moment it's getting a lot of press like addiction and disorder and gambling problems are getting a lot of press and although a lot of the stories are you know heartbreaking to read it's become an item on the agenda um sometimes people forget about the other issues when there's one particular item that's right at the top of the agenda but yeah so there are still issues with with drugs in sport there are still issues with alcohol in sport um there are massive issues with um Lower mood, depression, anxiety, as there are in in life in general. Also, things like uh, eating disorders and um, other sort of addictive behaviours like gaming. Uh, for some people, that can lead to gambling. What else like phone? You know, mobile phone use, social media. Um, even like one of the things that started to appear is people running into problems with things like cryptocurrency. Um, again, can be seen as a form of gambling. So um, there are issues that that are all kind of it's twofold thing. There is the addictive stuff and that, but then while they're a big part of what we do, um, the most common phone call that we'll get uh, or that the, the triage team will get at the clinic is, you know, I don't feel right. You know, something's wrong. I'm not quite sure what it is, but you know, can you help? Um, so often the, the the issue that a client presents with actually might turn out to be something else completely later down the line. So our stats wouldn't pick that up because we only pick up what the client refers for, but it might be that someone's feeling depressed, but they've got a gambling addiction and they don't realise that until they've had a, a bit of therapy or they've come into the, the clinic for treatment or whatever it might be. Um, but <laughs> sports people have the same... The same kind of problems, issues, um, potential issues that every human being has. I think one of the things that we often forget is that sports people are human beings, you know, because they can do the things that we can't. So we look up to them like some kind of godlike creatures, um, but they are human beings and they've got all the usual human problems. But on top of that, they've got sport specific pressures that can result in mental health issues. They've got a completely different environment to most of us um so actually sports people are more likely to suffer with a mental health problem than a member of the general public and a member of the general public is very likely to suffer with a mental health problem so it would be almost um unusual for a sports person to get through their entire career without suffering a mental health problem and by the way Many of the people we see are retired sports people because that in itself is a really difficult adjustment to make as well.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not surprised to hear all the stuff you just said there. To be honest, I'm really not. Um, I wonder though. I wonder um, with with sports nowadays and with the kind of advertising, the gambling advertising that's in sport, and how the sports in themselves, whether they want to or not, is expected, I suppose, to be a part of that um, that selling of gambling. Unfortunately. Um, So take a footballer who's got to to wear a kit with a gambling firm on it. And maybe lots don't think about it. I don't know. But they're in that environment. And we know the BGC always tell us about their uh, whistle-to-whistle ban on the TV and all that. But as we know, actually, in my mind, means nothing because there is still gambling advertising on the the build-ups of football games and after. But specifically in the grounds. Um, you know, it's everywhere. So the players are within that all the time. They're, they're in that environment and they're wearing it on themselves. And and sometimes you'll find them in adverts for the, for the company as well. Or, you know, if, if the club is sponsored by Betway, for example, I'm thinking this because I was at West Ham last Monday, um, you will see players in their shirts playing games and stuff in that shirt and they're expected to do it. Um, do, do you get a feeling that players want to do that, don't want to do it? Some of them face problems because of it or any of them actually got any idea that these things can cause harm at all. I'm sure Sporting Chance educates as well, doesn't it? So this might tie into that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, 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 the other area of our organisation, apart, apart from treatment, is education. And Sporting Chance um, goes into professional football clubs and cricket clubs, rugby clubs and some individual sports as well and provide education on mental health but um, also addictive disorders. And as part of that, we launched a a program called GATE last year. It's Gambling Awareness Treatment and Education. Um, And it's basically just met the demand, really, for a rising problem, Um, more specific gambling-related treatment. So whereas before you might treat two people with addiction the same, whether it was gambling or alcohol or other drugs... Now we will try and make sure, or well, we will make sure, that we pair um, a gambling client with a counselor that's got expertise in gambling addiction, not just addiction. For example, we'll run gambling-only treatment clinics. Um, and in terms of education, we have gambling-specific education. We have had done for some time. Um, I've only been involved for the last couple of years. Um, as far as I know, we're the only independent organisation in sport that um, provides education. Um, I think it's important that that option's out there for sports clubs. Um, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable kind of having education that has been paid for by the gambling industry it just doesn't sit right with me and, and treatment as well, actually, although some people have had treatment and it's worked for them. So I'm not you know saying I'm against it. I'm just saying what's important is that there is the option there. For an independent um, organization, and we go into clubs and we educate on all sorts of factors. One of them, which I think is one that's missed um, in a lot of treatment and education, really is uh, environment, and that is the, the environment in football, in particular, but in sport in general is. It's been completely saturated by gambling. So, as part of the launch of Gate last year, we, we wrote an open letter. Our CEO, Colin Bland, wrote a letter to the sort of governing bodies in sport, our stakeholders, and um, just kind of raised a concern about actually some of the stuff that you were saying. Um, because our, our primary concern is you know, we exist to provide education and treatment. For professional sports people on matters relating to mental health including addiction and one of those is gambling and we've seen a massive rise and and our big one of our biggest concerns is hypothetically and it may not be hypothetical but um i wouldn't know if this has actually happened myself but hypothetically say a player comes into our treatment clinic for gambling addiction he's there for four weeks he has a lot of good therapy has good relationship with the other clients that are in there. Um, he engages with the recovery program. He decides that he's going to carry on going to meetings and engage with a the therapist when he when he leaves treatment. And after that four weeks, and so by the way, Sporting Chance, the other thing that they do is look after them physically as well. So they've got top-class top class, top class uh, gym facilities and things like that so that it can be returned to the club in the best mental and physical shape properly. And then he goes back to that club that's got a betting company on the stand Uh, betting company on the shirt you know playing in a league that's sponsored by a betting company with every time he watches football advertising around betting and and still a a bit of a culture amongst his teammates of gambling even though they might be supportive of him because the dressing room is actually often a very supportive player still rally around people um but as you'll know you know you can't expect everybody else to stop drinking and gambling because because you do and it can be just a very difficult culture to throw somebody back into, particularly that early and the normalisation of it. So yeah, sporting chances area of, you know, interest is is the players themselves and it is really worrying that, you know, we could be doing everything right and then they go back into that environment and it, it could be so difficult, particularly after, you know, four-week treatment or something like that. So yeah, I think um, we, at the time, sort of just reached out to clubs and asked them to, just ask questions about their own relationship with the gambling industry, you know. I think you, you mentioned the BGC. I think I have to say that um, I think that Michael Duger and Bridget Simmons at the at the BGC, they've got a, a very impressive ability to, to keep a straight face when they've been so disingenuous um, because things like the whistle-to-whistle ban, uh, complete folly, complete folly. It's I, I've even noticed, I've been watching Premier League since it returned i've even noticed they're even sneaking an extra advert in now so they can get another gambling advert in before that 5 minute period but then of course you've got gambling advertised all throughout the match um on the on the advertising hoardings on the shirts on the stands you know on the stadiums and whatever it is so it's it's amazing that um like yeah, they're either uh you know blind to to this stuff or just not blind which is even worse and just willing to to pedal it but yeah i think there's um i think there's a big worry that um there's we've now probably got a generation of sports people that have been brought up in a gambling culture in terms of what's around them what's visible all the time and it's become so normalized because it's you know that's the definition of normal isn't it just seeing something all the time um, and you know, hopefully, the work we do with the younger players will help them to just challenge their beliefs, to understand that it's not normal, to understand themselves, to understand their environment. You know, these are the kind of things that we go into. But also, that for those people who do develop problems, they, they know who they can call, they know they've got somewhere to go. But yeah, I think in in sport in particular, but as in society, um, because it doesn't take much, does it, for you? I'm sure if you open a web page now. Um, you might get pop-ups gambling adverts i got a text message earlier today from a um non-gam stop site you know that sort of thing that's trying to trying to bombard me and it was a text message that you can't even block i do <laughs> it was you know so it's just everywhere walking up the high street you see so many betting shops um and yeah it's in society not just in not just in sport i think it's a huge huge issue Huge issue. I used to be of the opinion as well. I don't know about you, Chris. When I first got into recovery, that I was like, no, it's all about me. You know, I I have to change. The outside world doesn't need to change. And actually, in times of relapse, I used to think when everyone was going. I, I had a big relapse at the time of the uh, beat the fobties um, campaign, which is very successful. But I it, part of that campaign made me feel hopeless because I was relapsing, and I started to think, well, if it's all about the external then i'm screwed until until they actually ban these machines or until you know they close all the bookies or until gambling's banned but as, as i've sort of matured in my recovery and in my life i've realized that it's a mix of um what situations i put myself in how i deal with my thoughts and feelings but also the environment that i'm, that I'm surrounded
1: by and just like that the internet stopped working and we couldn't get it back So that did bring me to the end of the discussion with Chris. Um, Fantastic discussion. I could relate so, so closely with a lot of the things that Chris said. Um, And yeah, so really now, Chris, I hope you're listening. I know you're listening. Um, So thanks for coming on. It's been a really, really great discussion. Thanks for talking to us about your experiences, sharing that with the listeners. And thank you so much for talking about Sporting Chance as well. A really, really interesting discussion. Now to all our listeners, um, please come back and join us again next week for what will be our final episode of season four. Stay gamble-free, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the All Bets Are Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetsareoff underscore and share
0: this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble-free. Thank you for listening.